Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of The Work. My co-host, Gina Kelly and I are going to be welcoming Michael Canisto to the conversation. Michael is a... Um, you don't meet many people like Michael Canisto. He designs his own clothes. He is a magician in a former life. Um, he has his fingers all over contemporary talent acquisition, and he runs a small think tank called Bindemic Labs that does scenario planning. And today we're going to be talking with Michael about scenario planning. But before that, Gene, watch it. Weigh in, say hello, introduce yourself a little. Oh, thank you. Well, um, obviously, I'm uh, Gene Achille, uh, because I'm not Michael or, or John. Uh, but I'm excited that we're going to talk about scenario planning. This is one of my favorite topics, actually. And um, I, I'm sorry to say that I have uh, lived through a number of different organizations who are not good at scenario planning or perhaps ignore it altogether. So I think we're going to have a very interesting conversation today. Well, so with that, Michael, um... Why don't we just jump right in? Give me give me the two bullet definition of scenario planning, if you would. Scenario planning is a methodology used by organizations to generate detailed scenarios, describing multiple possible. Notice I did not say probable. Multiple possible futures, not as a way of predicting what's actually going to happen but as a way of preparing the organization for whatever the future may bring. So I'd be really good at that because I always know what the worst thing is that could happen. <laughs> is, is that what you're talking about? In some cases, I suppose it could be. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like that's what happens sometimes, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Um, so so what does it take to, to actually utilize the output of a of a scenario planning session. We'll get we'll get to what they are, but 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 say I'm a company and I've heard about the scenario planning stuff. What do I need to know after we've done the scenario plan to make some use of it? I think one of the main not that this is what you asked me, but I think one of the main reasons companies don't utilize it. It is a super powerful tool and there's all sorts of great examples of organizations that used it and um, used it successfully. But I think the reason that people don't use it is because people don't really know what to do with the outcome when it comes. So in other words, I always tell people the first thing when I start talking about scenario planning is it's not meant to, to predict the future. It will never predict the future. No one can predict the future. What it can do is, is, is help change the mental mindset of the organization and the leadership within an organization to accept unthinkable possibilities. So often what times what happens is people will uh, do scenario planning or say they do scenario planning, but what they're really doing is predicting things that are very predictable, incremental. But if you go out 10 to 20 years and develop these wild, unthinkable scenarios, you know, people don't know what to do with that. Um, and, and again, they say, well, that, that didn't happen. That was wrong. How will we know? How will we know that we were right or not? And, and that's not what it's for. It's there to change the mental mindset and get you out of the day-to-day -day incremental thinking that got you in a leadership position if you're a leader within a company and to think about, well, how do we think about the unthinkable, which is actually how this all started. This was a Cold War era 
think tanks coming up with thinking the unthinkable. What would happen if someone launched a missile? Well, what if they launched? What if then what if another missile got launched? And then what else would happen? Thinking the unthinkable in um, and and organizations just aren't equipped to say we don't really know what's going to happen, but how can we change our mental mindset? You, you don't hear a lot. You don't hear a lot of that in, in the corporate setting. I think I think corporations are so transact so wired to be transactional that this strikes me as very strategic, time consuming thinking that needs to take place, and and that they don't slow down long enough, or or have the resources to do it. Someone once told me that, right, you don't get to the C-suite by standing up in front of a room full of people and saying, I have no idea what's going to happen, <laughs> but I have some great ways of challenging your mental agility. <laughs> and, and you know, we hire them because they say they know exactly what's going to happen. And just like they're no better at predicting the future than you or I, as a matter of fact, they're probably less able to predict an unthinkable future because they're so focused on what's going to happen in the next quarter, yeah. the next fiscal year, the next project implementation. And so, um, yeah, it's, yeah, you, you don't often hear a senior leader say, I, I don't, as we all know, I have no idea what the future is going to bring. So, so right now, it seems to me that we're in an unthinkable moment. And so, so I wonder if there's actually a shortage of people needing to find more unthinkable stuff. Right, it's it's a um, a crazy time that we're in, and so if I can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow, um, why should I even care about what's going to happen ten or twenty years from now? Yeah, I, <laughs> I think I think what I'm seeing is people. Um, what I'm hearing from, like I say, the corporate world is people just cannot accept the fact that they don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So I see lots of people talking about, you know, well, this is going to be what our new work from home policy is going to be. This is going to be our new approach to relocation. This is how we're going to handle masking. And it changes all the time, right? And I hear a lot of, well, when the, when the cases go down, these are all the things we're going to do. And they make these detailed lists and put these plans in place, but no one knows what to do. It's, it's, the unthinkability is not the fact that we all are working from home. There's lots of ways that could have happened in the modern world. There could have been an infrastructure collapse. There could have been you know, any number of reasons that we're all working from home. But the unthinkable is that no one really knows what to do. And these are people who get rewarded and compensated and paid by always knowing what to do. And so in a way, I feel like there's more uncertainty today, despite all the data we have and um, information about the tracking of, of the virus, but I feel like it seems more confused than it was when they just said, everyone stay home and log on and, and we'll figure this out as we go. So, so Gene, I have a question for you. Um, you. You are actively involved in the planning of um, events mm -hmm. that help people prepare for the future. Um, and I, I wonder what you're thinking about the future right now looks like how how do you help people prepare for a future that's as uncertain as it is yeah i'm i'm sitting here and i'm thinking um twofold you've just raised a good point that i'm going to come back to in a moment um a fair amount of our practice is focused on crisis communications planning but to michael's point uh, we are writing those plans based on the crises that we can identify you know, so so what has happened where there's his, uh, historic perspective uh, versus what we can't possibly forecast? Uh, I think that 
I go back to my point about transaction. I think that most businesses are focused on the short term. They're focused quarter to quarter. Uh, I also think that human nature is such, and, and this goes to what you've just raised, Michael, and, and that is human nature is such to try to control, to try to predict, uh, and we feel better if we're making choices. And, and, and that, by the way, has been, uh, it's not a revolutionary thought. It's been proven over and over again. I mean, even people on their deathbed might choose to move their hand to the left just because they could make a choice. So, you know, we keep trying to make choices. We keep trying to put things out there. Um, but the reality is we, there's a fair amount we don't control. I do laugh when I hear people talk about the future of work at events because, um, I think there's so many aspects to the future of work, including the workforce itself, that is changing and becoming so diverse and uh, expectations have changed so dramatically, uh, you know, and um, yeah, I, I, I just unpacked a lot. I'd love to have you guys react to that. Let me grab that. Let me grab that and then I'll pass it off to you, Michael. Um, uh, one of the things that, that Jean touched on is that um, it's it's kind of silly to be talking about the future of work right now. And, and my view on that um, is that work is something that's very, very different from setting to setting. It's the, There isn't really a single kind of work or a single definition of work. Um, do, do you buy that idea? And how could scenario planning help me understand better what I need to do about work in my company or work in the economy? I think um, the thing that's, I think that where it could help was whatever the nature of the work is. If you sat down and decided, um, I want to, I want to, I want the three of us to sit and think about the future of how podcasting will enable and empower the future workforce. What does podcasting look like as it relates to um, how people do their jobs? Uh, people who do office type of work. And I think what would happen is if the three of us sat down and took that as a takeaway and went away and got a group of diverse people and went through a facilitated session, did some speculative fiction, came back with um, a scenario report and we laid them down on the table next to each other, I can guarantee you two things. One is they would all be completely different. And two, they would not describe what would eventually happen if they were a 10 year time frame? It's absolutely not what would happen. But one thing that absolutely would happen is they would all be useful to us because you podcast and I have podcast and we all have a mental model about what podcasting looks like and how it's recorded and how people consume it and how you get more viewers and what people get out of them. And that's preventing us from imagining what will this look like 10 years from now? And I think regardless of the quality or how accurate it is, this is where myself and everyone else gets hung up. Well, I, I don't think that's going to happen. Well, that's not the point. The point is to make you think in ways that you've never thought before. So I think it's less about how will my job as a craftsperson or someone who creates media or someone who makes widgets, it's less about how this job that I do today may change in the 10 to 20 year time frame. And it's to think about things that you would never sit down and think about the absolute unthinkability of how the job might change, which will give you 
agility in whatever changes eventually come to us um, help you accept them and, and respond to them in a, in a way that um, allows you to get ahead of your competitors. And I just unpacked a lot, but that's sort of how I think about it. The, the, mm-hmm. the point is not how accurate are you or how, how well did you answer the question? It's more about how well did you challenge your thinking about work or anything else that's, uh, that you use as a subject of a scenario planning event. So, so I think you, you just touched on, again, human nature's need to predict or control or, you know. Uh, so what does the framework look like to kind of suss out, to, you know, how, how do you get people thinking differently? What does that, that, that you mentioned, you know, facilitation, like what is the framework that helps us think differently? Sure. And as you know, there's a lot of practitioners. There's a lot of ways of approaching it. Um, the way I came to it, I actually went back to the very beginning and tried to find those original, you know, the writings in the 50s and 60s and 70s when it sort of, I would say, peaked or, or when people think about scenario planning, they'll often think about some of the famous work that occurred in the 1970s. So I tend to use this approach. There are many approaches, but you know, the approach I use is to get a really diverse group of people people who don't do the thing every day that you're there to talk about. If we were going to talk about podcasting, I would get people who didn't have anything to do with podcasting to help um, lend some depth and breadth to the discussion. Um, most, most, um, uh, most approaches will uh, select a time frame between 10 to 20 years. And then almost all the places or almost all the approaches I've read is you sit there and one by one, consider the driving forces that are impacting your business or your group, uh, political, economic, demographic, social, and one by one, think about those, you know, what, what demographics, what, what's happening demographically, are birth rates going up or going down? What if they went up drastically? What if there's some weird variant that renders half the population unable to have children? Like what might that look like? And then um, the fun part, then it gets really fun, which is you begin to plot those possibilities or combinations of possibilities on on a two-by-two matrix. You plot them, um, how likely are they to happen? Are they likely to happen or unlikely to happen? And how impactful would it be? Would it not impact Mm -hmm. you at all or would it be outrageously impactful? And the sweet spot are things that are uh, highly impactful, but very unlikely to happen because those are the things that change your business completely. So usually you'll pick a couple things that are highly, un, highly Im, um, that are possible, but not plausible or not probable, combine them in interesting ways and say, what would the world look like if this one, two or three things happened all at once and generate speculative fiction. I think that's the other part where people don't really get the full measure um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. It takes a long time to get through this. But the fun part is really writing this very detailed, descriptive piece of science fiction, almost speculative fiction, describing a day, a week, a quarter in the in a world where these incredibly unlikely things have happened and have totally transformed the business. Tell me about some of the projects you've done. Right, you, you, you've, you, you've had some pretty interesting one. I have. The first one I did, I was I was taking a trip down memory lane. And the first one was, it's coming up on five years ago that the first scenario report that um, uh, that I created myself, uh, Tribal Dimensions, which is a future of work, right? Of course, it was a future of work event. And um, I, it, I, I was reading it recently. I think it's aged well. It's five years old, but I still am 
I was just surprised at the fact that I gathered people that I knew really well. They were all people known to me and that I knew really well. And I thought, well, we probably think about things in really similar ways. I don't know how 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 cutting edge the output's going to be, uh, but it really was. And it, I, I'm still proud of it to this day. It's it's. Uh, I was really surprised at the power of the methodology. Um, I did one after that, which was sort of, um, uh, it was called Whose Flag Are You Going to Salute about uh, the sort of the involvement of the corporation or or of the company in your personal life. And then I really took, um, I took um, kind of a detour really and realized the power of this methodology to answer questions about all sorts of facets of life, not just corporate life. So I did a future of mental wellness at the beginning of COVID. I hosted a future of art um, discussion with some an artist and a gallerist. I did uh, the future of disability advocacy. I did one on the future of dating. Someone asked me about that. My roommate is try, or a friend of mine is trying to date in in the middle of COVID. What do you think the future of dating is going to look like? And then, most recently, I did one on the future of early career recruiting, because as we all know, we sort of skipped a year in a lot of cases for uh, college kids, internships, co-ops as a result of COVID. And it led me to get a really interesting group of people together to talk about what's it going to be like to recruit early career talent. Going back to the comment that um, I made, and I think one of you um, reiterated, was the, the power of having diversity. And so I, I, we had someone attending this event as a participant who didn't come from corporate at all. She had just graduated uh, for performance, uh, theater performance, and she was looking to get her first job on Broadway. And the perspective she brought about how she shows off what she can do, how she assesses whether a certain show is a fit for her, how her and the director uh, communicate information back and forth was mind-blowing. And I can tell you, it wasn't what was your grade point average, what school did you go to, and what classes did you take? Not at all. And so there was some really interesting discussion about that. I, I love that. I love that. I relate to that personally also. Um, uh, I was an art major in college. And then uh, later, yeah, a little few years afterwards, studied for an MBA. And I remember they would always call me out like I was some sort of, I don't know, circus act that I was sitting in, in night classes studying for an MBA and had been an art major. You know, and and I, I didn't understand why that was a problem because when you're an art major, you're used to sometimes looking at nothing and making something out of it. And I just thought that was a really good skill to have in business. Um, so I love the the diversity angle. I when I think of about diversity, though, I don't just think about knowledge workers. Um, and you mentioned uh, someone in in uh, theater. But, but also, uh, to what extent are you able to draw in, let's say, our hourly worker population or our, our union labor population? I, I'm, I'm curious if they factor into scenario planning. Yeah, it's a, I've, I've never done a scenario planning event where I, um, I, like I said, I did one for corporate and it was all people I knew in the recruiting space. And then the most recent one I did was around early career recruiting, and that had... Um, uh, some diversity, but, but not, not what you're talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. So what does it feel like to be, um, a minimum wage worker, right. On yeah. the front lines of a big giant corporation, or what does it feel to be uh, a union rep who's trying to represent the best interests of its constituency? And you have to be able to sort of operate in both worlds. I, I think that's, a, I, I would love to do that actually, but it is funny when you talk about who, you know, as I think the biggest learning I've had as I learned to be a scenario director is, 
the more outrageously diverse the group can be, the more powerful the outcomes are going to mm-hmm. be. It's easy. So. It's easier yeah. to let, like, I feel like I don't have to work as hard if there's diversity in the room. I don't have to draw it out of people, yeah. right? Because people bring different backgrounds. And, and I absolutely agree that, you know, if you just have people who all do the same job, it's a lot harder to draw um, unthinkable scenarios than the people who are, um, who are uh, uh, living a very different life. For the um, COVID, the first uh, one I did for mental wellness, I had someone who's a chaplain who, who counsels people in end of life. Ooh. And her perspective was, um, as you can imagine, really quite different to people who are just, you know, thinking strategically about the future of work. She's with people who didn't make it and the things that they're missing out on, the things they regret, all because of this terrible thing called COVID. And she definitely added a dimension that none of us even thought of. That's that's fascinating and and sad also. That's that's tough. I, I I'm curious, John, I've heard you talk about the impact on of COVID in the workplace. Um and, and that potentially we have lost some good people as a result of COVID. From a scenario planning standpoint, is that something anyone ever anticipated? I mean, did we ever look at, you know, the impact of COVID deaths on, on our workforce? I don't think so. I th- you know, maybe Michael will have a, bit, a better answer, but even though... For the last 20 years, every scenario workshop that anybody ever had anywhere had plague as one of the not very likely but very impactful things. It's not clear to me that 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 what scenario planning is good at doing is answering questions like the one that you just asked. Practical outcomes from scenario planning are hard. Yeah, Michael? It is, because again, you I, I think in the, the little dabbling that I've done around COVID, I think one of the things that came clear to me early on was, um, again, this notion that what we want to do is get back to work, get mm-hmm. back to the new normal, mm. um, and sort of figure out a way to keep doing what we did before all this happened. And I think um, in conversations that I've had with people, not necessarily formal scenario planning events, we felt like the the surprises were going to be who, who actually gets things done at the company? And um, this notion of, you know, in some companies, for example, we invest a lot of money on high potentials and we send them off to um, all these expensive programs and give them these development opportunities in the, in the, with the idea that maybe someday one or two of them will, will, you know, this will really pay off and they'll bring benefit to the company. That makes a lot of sense when you don't have COVID around. And the idea that suddenly, as I'm talking to people who are trying to get paid, trying to get a laptop to work from home, trying to get their phone set up, suddenly the person who might not have seemed all that important, like the person who pays the bills, the person who requisitions the laptops, suddenly they're really important. And so as companies were making decisions about you know, who's, <laughs> who, who should stay and who should go, I think a lot of companies were surprised what I'm hearing is a lot of companies were surprised that the people they let go actually did really important things from yeah. day to day. Yeah. From a business continuity standpoint, I mean, there's such a, a, a deep connection between scenario planning and business continuity. And uh, and as uh, we have seen before, 
Um, sometimes companies don't know who is doing what in the organization. Titles can be extremely misleading. So um, I think you've you've just uncovered evidence of that. John, I have a question for Michael. I don't know if it's okay if I ask this, so I'm going to be bold here. Um, I'm connected to Michael on Facebook, and periodically he posts the most amazing what do I call them? Outfits? Um, things you've created that like are so unexpected and so beautiful and, and you're always um, so good about describing their evolution. I, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Can you, can you, can you help uh, our listeners understand? Sure. I, <laughs> a few years ago, earlier in my career, I started working for um, an apparel company and I'm a recruiter, right? The recruiter wants to understand the business so that they can be a good recruiter. And I remember sort of saying, you know, I, I, I kind of get it. I mean, we make clothes and we sell them, but I don't really feel like I understand what's happening. And of course, from an intern, an intern said, you're in one of the fashion capitals of the world. Go take a sewing class. <laughs> you can figure out what we do. So I walked down the street and I took a sewing class and I, I liked it. And I took a the fashion design class and I took a draping class, but, but really what it is, it's, it's, it's the way I describe it is um, it's very relaxing for me. It's a hobby. And what it allows me to do, I call it a 3d puzzle working backwards. So if I see, if I have an idea for something or I'm inspired by something, I like lots of mid-century types of clothing and I do mostly dressmaking for some reason, but I'll sort of say, I wonder how I would make that. And then I would work backwards. I'd try to draft a pattern. It, it's for nothing. I, they all go into a bin here <laughs> in my basement. So it's not like I'm selling them or giving them to people in general. I just like doing it. But thank you for saying that. It's, it's really fun and it's a really fun hobby. It, it, it must require enormous patience, um, you know, to put things together, first of all, but, but also the level of detail to which you, you replicate these items. It's, uh, it's very interesting to, to observe. John, I don't, know, um, uh, I don't know if you've seen some of Michael's creations. Well, oh, I have, and, and I think we're, we're running at time, so I'm, I'm going to wrap up with a long, long question for Michael. I've, <laughs> I have... Michael, Michael was uh, the head of recruiting in a perfumer before he went, went to work in the fashion industry. And two of my favorite experiences of all time are going on a perfume tour of New York City with Michael because you learn the nose from him. And we spent, I'm, he'll remember the name of the place. There's a three-story fabric store in the fashion district that just seems to go on for miles and miles. And we walked through the fabric store and it was incredible. The reason I bring these things up is my, my view of, of Michael's work with scenarios is that it's an excuse to learn really deeply about some things, right? And so every time I hear about another scenario shop that he's done, He's so excited about what he learned in that process. And I think that's what makes his, his workshops sing. And I'm going to leave you with one question, Michael. And that's, that's would you tell us a little bit about what you learned in the disability world? I will. It was, um, I think that one, I'll, I'll always remember that one for several reasons. One, it was, I had gotten, I sort of found the sweet spot in, letting a group run <laughs> and 
being able to listen as a participant myself and facilitate it and move us along and accomplish the things that needed to be accomplished. And I just had a really great group. I didn't really know. I knew, I knew the participants, but I didn't know them well. And I think what was the magic moment for me as far as kind of understanding the unthinkable was I went in with a set of assumptions. I, I try to prepare, right? I try to prepare for what we're going to talk about. And this group, you know, these are, these were, um, uh, uh, three women with, uh, with disabilities. And I thought, well, I went to all the corporate training in the 1990s and there's some great laws that protect people. And isn't it wonderful in a sense, maybe one good thing coming out of COVID is I'm sure they're all working now, right? Because they can work from home. Everyone's working from home. So I had this set of assumptions going into the, into the session and within the first hour, everything I ever thought I believed about disability was completely wrong. These, these women were so patient with me. And all of these things about, um, uh, no, they actually still can't find employment. And a lot of the things that uh, challenged this population the most, it was totally unexpected, which was many people with disabilities, because of advances in science and medicine, live a lot longer than they used to. And so there's this cliff that, you know, that when they're children, they've got great medical care. After that, there's really no one, no one knows what to do with them. We didn't really expect you to live this long. Oh, oh and um, just, the, it, it sort of tore me down right to the, right, you know, I, I knew nothing about what was going on and to listen to the challenges, um, everything from sort of being fetishized, they call this inspiration porn, like posting pictures of someone in a wheelchair saying, oh, aren't they, you know, what excuse do I have not to go to the gym? Isn't this an inspiration? And basically the message being, we are human beings and we're not here to inspire you. We have skills and we want to work. And there are so many challenges that are facing us that it's, it's just a, it's a full-time job trying to, to navigate all that. And so, as you can tell, it made a huge impact on me. And I really was grateful to them for sort of re-educating me, but also recognizing that um, this was, this is a problem that's so much more complicated and pervasive than I ever imagined. And you're right. It's my favorite event because I learned so much in it and it was such a rich discussion. It was, it was really remarkable. Well, this has been, this has been instructive. Would you take a moment and tell people how they might get a hold of you and whether or not it's easy to get copies of your scenario reports and how to sure. do that. Sure. So I do have a, a poorly maintained website, which is mindemiclab.com, M-I-N-D-E-M-I-C-L-A-B.com. And there you will find a little more information about the methodology and uh, what happens at a scenario planning event. You'll find copies of at least one, if I can sneak another one up, uh, formal uh, scenario reports, the ones I described earlier. You can, get a, you can download a copy of Tribal Dimensions. It's all, it's all free. And the other thing that was interesting is during COVID, I started recording the scenario planning events just because I wanted to make sure I didn't miss anything. I was facilitating, I was participating and so forth. And as I went back and listened to the recordings in order to write the reports, um, I really realized that you know, you could take two days worth of discussion and distill it down into, you can hear the moment, you know, the, the, the big idea was born, or you can hear the moment that this really remarkable uh, possible future kind of came into existence. And so I've cut those down into some episodes. There's three or four of them as well that you can listen to. Uh, and so 
go in and take a look. It's all free and you're welcome to, um, uh, to consume all of that content. If you want to talk to me or you want to have deeper conversations, you can send me an email at michael at mindemiclab.com. Thanks, Michael. What a great conversation today. Gene, thanks for being part of this. Um, and everybody in the production crew, thanks for helping with the production. Michael, a treat as usual. You've been listening to another episode of The Work. 